This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. There is a danger in telling success stories or celebrating success, especially the success of minorities or people from particularly difficult circumstances from poverty. And TK Coleman, who's joining me today, is unhappy about this, and he wants to reclaim the lost art of celebrating black achievement. Welcome, TK. Uh, why do we need to reclaim the art of celebrating black achievement or success more generally? Well, first of all, you know, we've had a lot of people in the game who have unfortunately sort of made success stories into a form of victim blaming. There are a lot of people out there who enjoy playing identity politics by talking to minorities or people who struggle as if all of their struggles are their fault. And, it's, and, and if they're not successful, it's because they aren't trying hard enough, they're not working hard enough, and they're not choosing to be like Oprah or other people that have risen up you know, from difficult conditions. And so a lot of the caution that we approach success stories with comes from a reaction to these people, you know? Um, so there, there are a lot of examples who, you know, a, a lot of examples of people who get into positions of success and then they talk down to other people. They talk down to black people or they talk down to poor people and they say, you know, things like, you know, watch the way you talk or, or pull your pants up or, you know, walk straight or quit acting like a thug. And, you know, if you only stop doing these things, you'll be successful. And all the reasons why you're not successful is because, you know, it, it has something to do with your fault. And they neglect the fact that, hey, look, disadvantages are our reality. Hardships are reality. And I feel like a lot of people feel so strongly about the need to to make that clear that we've sort of lost our ability to um, to to reclaim the value of, um, of of emphasizing those people who have you know risen up w without treating those stories as if they're um, as if they're a threat to us you know um, and, and so when I say we need to reclaim this I mean that we need to find a way to celebrate achievement again w without feeling like it's tantamount to victim blaming. We need to find a new way of talking about success. You know, if you look, if you look at the uh, hip hop tradition, for instance, there's a long-standing practice of celebrating our ability to rise above insurmountable odds. You know, I, I think about lyrics like Mike Jones, back then they want me, now they all on me. I think about Mace who said, fools wouldn't listen to my demo, now they want to ride in my limo. I think about 50 Cent who said, get rich or die trying. I think about KRS-One who says, the poor get poor, the rich get richer. So visualize wealth and put yourself in a picture. Now it's easy to listen to stuff like that and say, oh, that's just superficial. All these guys are talking about is making money. But if you actually read their read their lyrics, if you actually listen to their songs, a lot of these guys are talking about creating progress. These guys are talking about being in situations where they had no options. They had no one supporting them, you know, no one making it easy for them. And they found a way to rise above. They found a way to to achieve their dream. And uh, and, and I think that's a valuable thing. And look, there are two aspects to success. There, there's a structural aspect. We're affected by the people we're around, the neighborhoods we grow up in, the advantages and disadvantages we grow, you know, we we're born into. But then there's also a personal element. There's the determination 
to make the best of whatever it is we have and to refuse to let anything or anyone hold us down. Uh, like P. Diddy and May said, can't nobody hold me down. Uh, <laughs> there's a determination to have that kind of attitude regardless of what you're going through. And I think both of those are things we need to focus on. And I think that latter part is starting to get left out because people are afraid, you know, of uh, glorifying these achievements. It, you know, they're afraid that there will be victim blame. It's interesting when you said, you, you know, you're in kind of an uncomfortable place when success stories are viewed as a threat. And I wonder if part of the problem is there's two different conversations going on. There's a conversation about society and there's a conversation about individuals. And, you know, when we talk about society or various institutions, I think it's incredibly important to understand the different incentives at play and what kind of institutional kind of predictable problems result from the systems that we live under. So for example, if you want to analyze the drug war, there are incentives at play because of the beliefs people have about drugs and the policies in place and the vested interests who carry out those policies. There are incentives at play that cause uh, the, the drug war to, to be disproportionately harmful to the black community, for example. And understanding that and, and, and looking at that institution in society and breaking it down and saying, here is an institutional problem that is all else being equal, going to make life much harder on the average black person compared to the average white person. That's really important. And I think to, to progress as a society, we need to understand those institutions. But maybe the, the risk comes when, if we're so focused on those society-wide uh, society analysis and proposed solutions, we sometimes forget what that means for the individual, maybe in the meantime. So until the drug war is abolished, um, does that then mean that all young black people are uh, incapable of success or are doomed? Does that mean, what does it mean for an individual? What can they do? And when you point to a case of somebody that said, hey, given the odds, given how the game was rigged against me, I understood it. And I found a way to outgame the game. I found a way to rise above it or to break through. People who are so focused on on preaching, we need to change the institutions, which I agree with. If you find yourself seeing that success story as a threat and saying, oh, crap, well, we can't have anybody rising above because then it sort of makes our thesis less powerful. It says, oh, well, these institutional changes maybe aren't that important because see – you know, this person rose above. Um, it's a weird place to be in because you never want to feel threatened by the success of others, but you also don't want to overlook these these grievous institutional problems. How do you how do you balance that? How do you have both conversations at once? You know, it's interesting because I think about I, I, th I think about you know a common experience growing up in a family where you know every kid is at some point going to get angry at their parents, right? Um, so so maybe your mom doesn't let you do something you want to do and you're really upset with her and you're complaining about your mom. And then someone who's not part of the family, you know, they dive at it and they agree with you. They say, yeah, your mom's a jerk or yeah, I can't stand your mom. And then all of a sudden when you hear it from someone else, you react differently. And it's like, hey, 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 easy. Don't talk <laughs> about my mom like that. Right. E even though I was just doing the same thing. And I, I think that sort of illustrates this sort of tension that that goes on when we try to have these conversations on one end there's the conversation that people within a group 
need to have with each other and are comfortable saying when they're talking with each other. Then there's the conversation that people within a perceived group have with those outside of that group. And I think one of the struggles with having these kinds of conversations is that all too often, these success stories are used by people outside of a given demographic to condemn people who are part of a demographic they're not part of, you know? Mm. And, um, and, and I think that's the fear. I think the fear is not that, hey, as, as a black person, I can't be inspired by the, the achievements of, of people like Oprah Winfrey or, or Kenneth Chenault or Michael Eric Dyson or 50 Cent, but that other people are going to use these achievements and say, hey, see, you have no right to complain about anything. And, and, and so, and so I, I think a lot of times this discomfort with talking about these sort of things comes from a, a sort of fear of, hey, how is this information going to be used against me? Or how is this information going to be used to try to, to brush over some very real problems that are going on that perhaps we should need to talk, that, that we should be talking about, yeah. like, you know, the, the drug war that you mentioned. So you it's, know? it's, there's, there's an element of who the conversation is about conversations about society and about the individual and also who the conversation is among. So if there's a, a an in group argument, you know, you're having an argument with your family and somebody from the outside wants to, to say, you know, uh, pick a side and say, you know, this is such a stupid argument. You should just overcome it. See this one person did. It, it's kind of like, well, let me get, let me give you a more concrete example to, uh, to move to one that I'm more familiar with. So say among um, ideological groupings like libertarians, for example, it can be all kinds of debates. And, and with the internet, the challenge is these are, these are out in the open. So even though they're, they're in group debates, everybody else can watch. And sometimes people mistake them and think that it's a debate among every, all members of society. So you might have a group of libertarians debating different ideas about libertarianism, what it means, or, or, whether or not it's in good taste for libertarians to advocate policies in this way or that way. And they're going at each other. And people who are, do not identify with that set of ideas will look at it and constantly be searching for fuel for their arguments about why libertarianism in general is stupid. Or, or you'll have the phenomenon where there's like a defector. Like, I used to be a member of this group and let me write an article about all the things that are dumb about that group. And everybody loves it. It, it gets all kinds of clicks because people who are not a part of that group love to point at it and say, see, even your own, even your own group members are criticizing you. That's how bad you are. And I think those, those miss the point. There, there's a, there's a target audience or there's a, there's a conversation that, that belongs kind of in the family that's separate from the conversations, uh, in society at large. And I think there's some value to that. Um, but I will say it, it, it creates some awkward moments. So, I, I am actually quite interested just from a social change perspective, from a sociological perspective in a lot of different conversations that have to do with, uh, race in this country, uh, from moving from Michigan down to South Carolina, well, Virginia in between, but, um, and just the history of, of slavery, the different ways that race and these institutions have evolved over time and all the messiness of it. There's a lot of really interesting conversations that I would like to have, but I kind of feel like I have to have those in secret, like by myself. I got to like find books and like not even tell anybody because there's this feeling that as a white guy, I don't have standing that 
anything I say or even questions I ask, there's just such a high risk that they'll be offensive or that people can say, hey, you don't belong in this conversation. And while I completely respect that there are many conversations that I don't belong a part of, I don't belong in debates within the Catholic Church about how they should conduct themselves because I'm not a member of that church and that's not my that's not my conversation. So, I mean, there are conversations I don't belong in, but there's there's an element to which, especially when it comes to race, I don't even know how to engage outside of just reading books quietly to my to myself without feeling like I'm going to offend somebody by even asking to be a part of the conversation. What are your thoughts on this idea of standing that you have to have standing to even have certain opinions or say certain things? Well, you know, yeah, that, that that's a that's a really multi-layer complex issue in, in a lot of ways, but you know, I th- I think there's a difference between people saying, "Hey, you don't have the right to have an opinion or versus, hey, um, you don't have the right to invalidate another person's experience. So l- let me give you an example of, of how, uh, you know, of one of the ways in which this issue comes up. So let, let's take an issue where for many for many black people, for instance, an, an, an issue seems to be about race. Right. So like you you have something that's you know that's a really hot topic right now are you know um the, the tense relationship with police officers and a- although a lot of the recordings of shootings that are going around on the internet although that's new the phenomenon of people in black communities being afraid of police or nervous around them or not feeling particularly safe around them that's nothing new and uh, the new thing is the new thing is that now um, more and more white people in white communities feel feel scared around the police as well. <laughs> right. And, and you still have a, have a lot who, who still feel like, hey, the, the police officers are our friends. You know, um, I had a friend who was telling me that, you know, um, a bunch of them was, were, were hanging out and it was about six of them. And, you know, there, there was one you know white person among the group who, you know, was, uh, you know, was from a more affluent neighborhood and. There was a police officer that pulled them over and all the black people in the in the car got scared and they were like, oh, man, like everybody just be quiet. Don't say anything like they weren't doing anything illegal, but they were just afraid, like because they, they've learned to fear police and see them as a threat. And um, and, you know, the white person in the car says, guys, we're, we're more safe than we've ever been. The police are our friends. They're here to help us. Wow. Wow. And, and so you, you have very different views. And. You know, and, and I don't I don't want to generalize here and say, hey, all white people think this way, all black people think this way, all people from the suburbs think this way. There's a lot of diversity in how people see things, but 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 so when you take that topic, for instance, but but it's definitely true that in general, especially historically, um, there is more more fear and skepticism of police uh, in a typical black neighborhood than a white neighborhood, and and for good reason. I mean, it's it's definitely you know police misconduct um, affects them disproportionately so right right so 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 here you have there's a perception from one one demographic that says hey race is an issue race is a huge part of the problem and then there's another demographic that says hey it's not about race it's about something else and you know you shouldn't bring race into it like race is not a part of it well let me use an analogy from my marriage you know there are times where Maybe my wife is reacting to a situation and she's reacting to it in a way that seems dramatic or perhaps even overdramatic to me. And I might be inclined to say it's not a big deal. But from her perspective, it is a big deal, even if it's not a big deal to me. 
And if it's a big deal to her, then she has the right to process it as if it's a big deal. And for me to say it's not a big deal at all, just because I'm not experiencing it as a big deal, is a form of, of invalidation. And if I want to be able to communicate with her effectively, I have to approach the fact that she sees it as a big deal with respect and with empathy. And, and the moment I try to force her to adopt my position that this isn't a big deal before we can have a conversation about it, I'm going to make that conversation impossible. So a lot of times when people when people seem like they're saying you don't belong in this conversation, I think what's happening a lot of times is people are saying, hey, we can have a conversation, but don't invalidate my emotions and my experiences by forcing me to accept the terms and conditions of discussion that you lay down. Mm. So I see this and I experience this as if it's a race issue. And maybe you don't see it and experience it as a race issue, but please don't make it a prerequisite for conversation that I have to choose to adopt your colorblind view of reality because maybe I don't have the luxury of being colorblind since I perceive since since I experience myself as a contrast to the perceived norm at almost all times. Yeah. So I, I I don't think it's so much a matter of saying, hey, you can't be in this conversation, but if you're gonna have this conversation, be respectful of the fact that there are people who experience reality differently from you and you can't have intelligent conversations with those people if 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 you're if you're trying to build on a foundation of invalidating the way they see and experience and perceive and process the yeah. world around yeah. them. And, and I think there are lessons on all sides of the discussion that that we need to learn about that. But 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 I, I really don't think people are saying you can't talk. But you know, as far as you're concerned or anybody, if anybody out there is nervous, you know, when it comes to talking about race, I would say, hey, look. I'm I'm nervous about taking creative risk, but the rewards of taking those creative risk are are better than the alternative to me. And sometimes taking creative risk means I make mistakes. It means I embarrass myself. It means I have to come back and fix things that don't go right. Um, but nevertheless, I'm I'm down with taking those creative risk. And I think in a in a, in a similar way, when it comes to talking about race, yeah, it, it's a scary discussion to have. And yeah, people are likely to get offended in all sorts of different ways. But I, I think we all just have to toughen up, toughen up a bit and, uh, and do hard things because there are certain rewards that can only come when we do hard things in spite of the risks that are involved. It's not going to kill anybody for someone to um, say, hey, look, I'm offended when you express yourself in that way. That's the only way we're going to learn how to have these conversations is if we face the possibility of failure. Mm. You know, when you were talking, I, I couldn't help but think there's maybe one of the problems is talking about race as one of the one of the factors in a problem. Let's say let's say the issue of police uh, abuse and, and brutality. Acknowledging that race is a is a very um, important part of that problem is one thing, and I think when you look at solutions to the problem realizing that race focusing on race as a solution like okay people need to just be less racist it is is really uh difficult if not if not impotent right there's not really a so, so i guess i'll put it this way the challenge is to talk about possible solutions that don't have very much to do with race but because those are the solutions that are the most likely to succeed without making people feel like you are ignoring the role of race in the problem. So if I take the the police issue, 
there is no doubt in my mind that racism is a major part of the, the reason so many police officers uh, abuse their power and harass people and, and disproportionately black people. But when we come to solutions, there's there's really nothing to nothing more to do but to say, I guess I hope police officers will stop being so racist. I mean, anything you can explicitly do, like, well, let's have racial sensitivity training. Most of these things are usually don't aren't very effective, and I think even sometimes counterproductive. It it, it makes people more, uh, you know, more pissed off or hardened. But the real solutions that I think are viable are changing the, the structure. So racism exists in society. A lot of people are racist, but the incentives you face will determine how you channel that. So if I don't like, uh, you know, redheads, for example, uh, but I run a ice cream parlor, I can try to, you know, give them bad customer service and be rude to every redhead that walks in. Um, but that's not going to be very good for business for my Yelp ratings uh, over time. That's going to be hard to sustain. And if I am able to sustain it, it will be to my own detriment. I'll be, I'll be harming myself because the marketplace has an incentive structure that in the very least incentivizes me to hide and not act on my racism uh, very much at all. If I'm truly facing a free competitive market, whereas in the police structure, a complete monopoly on the use of force, uh, a court system that if it's a police officer's word against a bystander's word, uh, a system where there's so many things that are illegal, that bystander very well may be guilty of some other crime. And so they're viewed as even less credible. It is a, it is an institutional setting where that racism, which may exist just as much in any other line of work, has an ability to manifest itself in much more ugly, dangerous, even deadly ways. And so when I say things like, hey, I think I think the core problem that can be addressed is not so much people need to be less racist. It's that police officers ought to be more accountable and face more competitive pressure and there ought to be more transparency and they should wear body cameras and all these other things. And it's very easy if you say that to sound like, oh, so you're just saying it's not about racism. It's just about, you know, police misconduct or government needs to be smaller. And that's not at all what I'm saying. The problem has very much to do with racism, but the solution, um, you know, that that at least is more doable may not. And that's a tough place. That's a tough place to be in and a tough thing to try to argue. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's an interesting perspective. There's a book. um called How to Deal with Nasty People by an author named Jay Carter. And it's a book about ma manipulation and invalidation. And one of the things he talks about in that book is he says, manipulation is a, is a reality that happens every day all around the world. People are constantly being manipulated and invalidated at many levels. He says, but the, one of the first keys to overcoming or putting an end to the pattern of manipulation in your life is understanding that the best way to go about it is not by trying to convince the manipulators in your life that they're that they're manipulators. If, if your approach to ending manipulation is getting the manipulators in your life to admit that they're manipulators and then to stop doing it, you're probably going to fail. What you have to understand, even is that though, ability, even though from a moral standpoint, that may be preferable. And in the long term, that's the kind of people you want to interact with. It may not be possible in the short term. Yeah. And, and, and most most forms of manipulation are not seen by the manipulator as a form of manipulation. It's just seen by that person as, hey, I'm doing what I have to do in the situation that I'm in in order to achieve the result I need to achieve. Like most people are simply modeling 
forms of behavior that are learned or, you know, that, you know, that they were conditioned, you know, to, uh, to exemplify. So it, it, it's not like most people who are manipulating are, are saying to themselves, hey, I'm going to manipulate this person in order to uh, get what I want. Um, it, it's just all they know. So, for instance, uh, a, a friend of mine, you know, we have this running joke because we've been friends for a really long time. And, and and he still doesn't have the ability to trust our friendship by just asking me for something like he, has, <laughs> he doesn't have the ability to say like, hey, can I have five bucks or like, hey, can I can I uh, can I borrow? Can I use your phone for a second or hey, can I borrow that book? Like, even though I would totally say yes, he always has to say something like, hey, man, um, since I loaned you 10 bucks like back in the day, like five years ago, can I borrow your book? <laughs> And I always say to him, like, dude, just trust our friendship, man. You don't have to do that to me. Like, what, what, what's the reminder for it? in case I want to say no? Now I'm going to feel like obligated to let you borrow my book because of what you did for me five years ago. And, and, we, and we laugh about it and we joke about it. But is he trying to manipulate me? Is he trying to guilt me into doing something for him? No, I just think he's doing what he knows. I just think he's doing what's familiar. I just think he's following through on a conditioned pattern of behavior. So anyway, to, to bring it back to, to the discussion on, on manipulation, I, I think, you know, Tim Wise has this really interesting um, article called What Kind of Card is Race to Play? And he talks about this phenomenon of accusing people of playing the race card. And he talks about how the race card has, has hardly ever been a pleasant card for people to play. And, and how... Um, Whenever, whenever people bring up race, the, the, the first response by mainstream media is to accuse them of playing the race card. But he talks about the race card is a very pricey card to play. And, and, and the people who invoke race usually pay, play, pay a lot of consequences for invoking it in a lot of ways that people aren't aware of. And, and so he talks about, and, and in that article, he talks about how no matter how far you go back in history, like even 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 in times where today we would say, oh, it was explicitly racist at that time. Not only was it racist, but it was very overt and and it was backed by law. Even during those times, if you go back and read what people had to say about the times in which they lived, like belief in the existence of racism was not very prevalent. Like even among the people that perpetrated acts of racism, they did not see themselves as racist. And so one of the things he talks about is that convincing people that their actions are racist is one of the most difficult, if not impossible things to do. Now, there's a really cool video by uh, on YouTube by a guy named Jay Smooth, and it's only about three minutes long. And, and, and he talks about in this video um, how to tell someone they're doing something that sounds racist. And, and in this video, one of the points he makes is that hey, when, when you're TK, talking to people, yeah. Every once in a while, your audio is kind of getting echoey. I don't know if there's something you're moving away from the microphone or something, but just wanted to let you know that. What, what about now? Am I am I clear now? Yeah. All right. So one of the points he, he uh, Jay Smooth makes in his video, um, he also goes by the name of Sound Doctrine. You know, if you're if you're gonna Google him, but one of the points he makes is that you're you're much more likely to be effective by showing someone how what they're doing, regardless of intent, is harmful, rather than by trying to convince them that they are racist. And he says, the reason that's a dangerous move to try to convince them that they are racist is, is not just because you might be wrong, but because you might be right. And if you're right, 
you're going to give them the opportunity to make the discussion about their state of being. And that's when people go into this mode of how dare you say I am racist. I gave X amount of money to black people and to Asian people and Hispanic people. And I do this for the Latino community. And I do this for this community. Um, and, and you're just not going to convince anyone that the nature of their soul is racist. Mm. But it's better to, to position the discussion around, hey, here's what you're doing. I, I don't care about what you are. Here's what you're doing. And what you're doing is having this effect. And this effect is hurting this group of people. So whether you want to call that racist or not, you're having a harmful effect. Let's talk about how things can be done differently or how we've gotten to this place of having this harmful effect. So. To, to relate that to your point, I, I, I do think there is great value in having these discussions about race and pointing things out. But, but when it's time to bring about change, I, I think we have to base the conversation not on, hey, we need to convince the world that it's racist or we need to convince this person over here that they are racist. But we need to to find a way to show that what they're doing is harmful and um, and whether they see themselves as racist or not, we need to hold them accountable for their actual behavior and the results thereof, not, you know, um, and not have a debate about the state of their soul. That, that reminds me of um, Martin Seligman uh, is a, a very interesting psychologist, and he, he's got a book, um, The Optimistic Child, and he talks about trying to help. You know, everybody is is has different levels of kind of natural optimism or pessimism. And he says, you know, if if. Uh, children are very pessimistic. There are ways to help them retrain their brain to be more optimistic because this will help them be more successful in life. And, and one of the things in the book, it's it's the opposite of kind of phony self-esteem, telling people things that are obviously not true, like, oh, you're a great soccer player when they're not. It's to focus on both in praise and criticism, controllable actions or things that are seen by people to be within their control versus attributes that are seen by them to be just a part of who they are. So praising someone for being uh, beautiful is probably less valuable a, a kind of praise than praising them for um, working really hard at something or overcoming an obstacle or some action. And I think this goes to this issue I mentioned before of standing. If, if there's any way to address the, uh, the arguments someone makes or the actions they take and praising or criticizing those for the effects they have rather than who a person is or what their beliefs or motives are, things that are at least apparently um, harder to change, there's always going to be a, a better result to that for all parties involved. So, you know, hey, what you said is really insensitive um, and can cause hurt feelings is much more valuable to both parties than hey, you only said that because you're a racist or what you said reveals some inner racism um, that basically ends the discussion. It says who you are at the core of your being, whether you know it or not, is, is basically a bad person versus this particular action you took. Maybe you didn't even know it had this negative effect. I think that's really I think that's really important um, to focus on the actions and the arguments. Oh, man, you know, I, I think so many forms of human conflict fail to get resolved because people take an approach that says, before we solve the problem, I need you to agree with me on how much of an idiot I think you are. And, <laughs> and, and, and the debate is about that, right? Like the debate is back and forth. Like, here are the reasons why you're, you're an idiot. Can you agree with me first? And then we can solve the problem. No, I'm not an idiot. Here are the reasons why you're an idiot for thinking I'm an idiot. And it just goes on and on and on rather than focusing on, hey, look, when you do this or when you say this, 
it creates the following problem for me. Can we find a different way? Can, can, we, can we use a different approach? And it, it's not that that other discussion doesn't matter. It's not that the state of a person's heart and mind doesn't matter. It's just it's a different kind of discussion, and that's a really long-term discussion, and it's also a much more difficult discussion. But more importantly, we don't necessarily have to win that discussion in order to create progress with the other discussion. You know, and, and I think it's more likely to win that that deeper discussion about the state of someone's soul if you ignore it at least at first and focus on feedback about the action. So if you if you put someone in a situation where every time they say some horribly offensive thing, um, they're told, hey, that that's offensive and people aren't going to want to work with you if you say that over and over again, rather than you're a racist over time when, when it's not so on the spot, you know, defensive, Hey, you're a racist over time. That feedback is going to slowly possibly, right. is going to slowly sink in and they're going to start to realize I get this kind of feedback a lot. I say a lot of things that apparently offend people and aren't helping. Is there a reason? Is there something within me that's causing me to see the world this way? And, and that self-reflection, it, it takes time. You can't just confront someone and tell them, here are all the reasons I think you're a bad person to your core, um, but you can point out individual behaviors over time and there's a cumulative effect as people, it's like you kind of have to ease them into exploring their own, I mean, and not just other people, myself. You have to be eased into exploring your own biases um, because it's just too difficult and emotional to, to have it all, you know, this big moment of um, intervention. Oh man, and, and you know, from a historical point of view, you know, like, if you look at the uh, the history of slavery in America, sometimes the best strategies were covert strategies, strategies that did not allow the oppressor or the the manipulator or the enemy to see you were to see you coming or even to know what you were doing, uh, to to be able to achieve progress and and make movements towards freedom when when people think you're just being harmless. I think that's one of the smartest ways to go about things, you know. Um, give me, give me that's an example. Not the only way. Give me an example of uh, an activity that is, at first thought to be harm harmless, but has a very subversive power to it over time. So you know, I'll give you an example for you know for me. Um, that's and it's not easy to talk about. And this goes back to that idea of what kind of card is race to play. Hey, I, I, yeah, this whole conversation has been uncomfortable for me, so it's okay. Go ahead. Oh man, <laughs> you know, I'm nervous. I, 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 Oh, I, I love it. I'm not nervous, man. I, I, I love the conversation, but it's, it is difficult. So let, let me give you an example. So I'm a big fan of sci-fi and fantasy. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but one of my favorite shows, and I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, is Stargate SG-1. And yeah, I like that show, too. I like that show. It was when I tried to get me to watch Stargate Atlantis. It got a little too cheesy. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, um, so, so the premise of the show is you have – like a, a, a like a team of like you know space explorers who are, are are from Earth and they basically go through this Stargate technology and every episode they're on a different planet and like a different galaxy and they're encountering a different alien civilization overcoming some unique challenge and every episode it's it's a different place sometimes they they loop back to an old place to make connections but almost every episode is a different place and. I remember, you know, watching the show and I'm enjoying it. I'm having a great time. And I'm about, you know, 20 episodes in and I say, okay, it's been a couple of seasons now and 
every single planet we we've gone to a different planet every time every single planet we've been on i'm seeing nothing but white people on these planets and so <laughs> so, so 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 and i know i know i can make a lot of people upset with this and but i'm just making an observation here so you're telling me that the producers of this show have the ability to imagine a Stargate technology that allows us to travel to far and dis distant lands. They have the ability to imagine all kinds of amazing weapons. Like they can imagine everything except another planet that's got a black person on it. Like are all aliens white <laughs> in the imagination of these writers? Now, if I were to approach this conversation by trying to convince the producers and the writers of this show that they're racist, there's no way I'm going to be heard. In fact, I'm sure there are people that are listening to me say this that are already pr probably irritated and annoyed that I would point that out and probably feel like, darn it, why are you making this about race? It's not about race. But, you know, I, and I'll come back to that in a minute. I'd love to make a point about why so many things about are about race for some people and, and, and why the ability to be colorblind is a luxury that many people can't afford. But to get it, back to it this doesn't, point, does it make it more or less irritating to you that there is one black character in the show, uh, <laughs> Teal, uh, and, and who's I don't know, sort of the the mystical warrior, who who happens to have been a slave and and who happens to not be from Earth, right? <laughs> um, but 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 it's all good. It's all good. Okay, so so look, if I try to if I try to talk to the producers or the writers and say, hey, you guys are racist. You guys have evil intentions. Now, I'll be honest. I don't know where these guys are coming from. Now, from my perspective, it's a little hard for me to imagine missing that. If I'm on the staff of that show, I'm not going to miss that. I'm going to be the first one to say by the time we're three episodes so, so, deep. Like, So in defense of people missing things, I'm not defending the producer of the show or anything like that, but um, this, this is a great little interjection. So I grew up as a kid watching the, the movie Top Gun all the time. My brother and I watched it. We wanted to be fighter pilots and uh, we had like the edited for TV version. So I didn't know until I was in my 20s that there were swear words in Top Gun. It was it was quite a um, shocking revelation. But so we watch it all the time. We could quote the whole thing and we we're always quoting it. And uh, TK, at some point, you know, we were in college, maybe. I was like, oh, you got to come over and watch Top Gun. He's never seen it before. I couldn't believe this. So he comes over and watches it. And we're some way halfway through the movie. And DK says, wait a minute. You mean to tell me there's one black dude in this movie and his name is Sundown and he's like the butt of the jokes. And I was I it was like the most awkward, uncomfortable feeling I'd ever had in my life. I was <laughs> I was like, uh oh my gosh, I didn't notice this my whole childhood. I never made that connection between his call sign sundown and this sort of minor role that he played. And like, does that make me a racist? It was very uncomfortable and awkward. So uh, sometimes you can be oblivious. I never picked up on that until you mentioned it to me. But you know, but, but here's the power of understanding economics and understanding psychology, understanding the way incentive structures affect people's behavior. It's often assumed that if you understand why people do bad things or ineffective things, you are likely to be more accepting of those things. And I don't think that's true at all. I think if you understand why people do things that are either bad or harmful or ineffective, you actually put yourself in a position where you can communicate more effectively with those people to create change. So when it comes to this kind of stuff, the easiest thing to do is to adopt a, a sort of conspiracy mindset where you assume that there was some kind of meeting that took place in the back room and, you know, a, a few guys in a dark room decided, OK, 
here's how we're going to take over the world. We're going to make sure that on Stargate, there are no black people on any planet. That's my conspiracy voice. So if you talk to people as if that's what's going on inside their hearts, even if that is what's going on inside of their hearts, you're not very likely to be effective. But on the other hand, if, if you can approach them by saying something like, hey, look, um, just so you guys know, you got a lot of sci-fi and fantasy fans out there who are black. And just so you guys know, we love the show. We love what you're doing. But we also love to see a few people that look like us, too. You know what I mean? Like, we, we're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to get into a fight with you guys. We're not trying to accuse you of anything. We just want to let you know that it would be really awesome if we can, you know, see, uh, you know, if, if we can see some planets where, like, the king or the, the the president or whatever might be black or just some of the people that are on the planets. Now, you know, eventually I think, you know, like by the time we got to like the seventh season, you know, Stargate did, you know, just to give them credit, they did put a planet in there um, with some black folks. So I, I think somebody might have, you know, talked to them about it. But but th this is an example of, of why it's important to not just make observations and not just point them out, but to think really critically and creatively about how we can have this conversation in a way that leads to the results we want. Because it's not its not enough to just be right in our own mind. You know, it's not enough to just be self-righteously satisfied with having the correct point of view. It's also important that we achieve practical results that can improve the quality of lives for other people. So that, that would be an example of something that I see that I think has an effect. And, and I want to make a point about this whole colorblind thing, because some people would say, why make it about race? Why should you even care what color people on the TV are? Why should you even care about any of that stuff? And, you know, one of the reasons race is always an issue for some people is because there are some people who continuously experience themselves as a contrast to the perceived norm. Um, and whenever we experience who and what we are as a contrast to the perceived norm, we have a heightened awareness of who and what we are. So for instance, if you are a man and you're hanging around a bunch of men or you're hanging out in an environment where men and women are somewhat evenly distributed, you're mildly aware of the fact that you are a man, but for the most part, you're gender blind. You aren't really thinking about the fact that you are a guy and you're not having conversations about being a guy. On the other hand, if I send you to an environment where you you are you are only there with two other guys and it's it's all women there i guarantee that when you and the other guy see each other you're going to have some kind of joke about like hey Wait, you know are, are you describing pinterest <laughs> <laughs> i still don't understand pinterest but sorry go ahead but you know so I, i've experienced this phenom with you know some of my white friends who have come to me with you know to like a family reunion or something like that and in every single case, without exception, you know, I have, a, I have a white friend who's with me at a family reunion in an environment where it's just all black people. And there's some kind of joke. There's some kind of comment like, oh, man, like I stick out like a sore thumb or, oh, man, like, hey, you know, am I going to be cool here? Like and, and the joke is made in good spirits. But there, there's a revelation there that like, hey, when you experience who you are as a contrast to the perceived norm, you have a heightened awareness of who you are, and there's a need to sort of be honest with yourself and others about that in order to be able to handle that experience. And so, like, whenever you turn on the TV or you open a magazine or you go to work, 
if the majority of examples you're seeing of beauty and success and intelligence are, are images of people that don't look like you, and whenever you, you do see people that look like you, race has to be a part of the discussion, um, then th 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 you sort of live in a different kind of world, you know? Um, so, you know, this, this is why you can, you can probably be a white comedian and not really talk about race, but it's almost impossible to be a black comedian and not talk about it all the time. But it isn't because people are just determined to make everything about race, but people sort of, you know, have two very different experiences of the world. But when, when you don't experience yourself as a contrast to the perceived norm, you have the luxury to be gender blind or color blind or, or whatever kind of blind it is. So you said before, uh, just a few minutes ago that rather than focusing on, you know, sort of indulging in uh, maybe things that feel good in the moment, like accusing people of, um, you know, racism or whatever else, focus on taking actions that even if they're not, even if they're not noticed as directly challenging the status quo or directly subversive, that they bring about, they help achieve the end desired. So what is, what is the end that you desire? What, what are you hoping to achieve in this conversation, in this, uh, in the way that, that race is, um, you know, dealt with or talked about in society or to bring it back to our, to our opening, you know, reclaiming the celebration of black success. What does that look like to you? What, what will you see and say, yeah, that's what I've been trying to help bring about. That's what I've been trying to achieve. Yeah, you know, so my, my mission in life, period, my mission in life, period, and I probably sound like a broken record by now saying this because I say it all the time and I'm going to say it to the day I die. It's to convince as many people as possible, beginning with myself, that they have the permission and the power to be the predominant creative forces in their own. I, I want people to have the confidence in their potential to where regardless of where they find themselves in life, they respect their ability to, to author their own narrative. And they, they, they never transfer power to something or someone outside of themselves. And, 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 whatever, and whatever, they, whatever they go after in life, they go after it like a badass. And, and they say, hey, I've got the ability to do this. I've got the ability to make it happen. I'm gonna make it happen. You know, uh, kind of like with the attitude of 50 Cent, get rich or die trying. And again, if you just if you're determined to look at that as just some superficial materialistic perspective of reality, that's all you're going to see. But if you look at it in its broader context as a determination to create wealth, as a determination to achieve progress, regardless of where I come from and what's going on in my life, um, that, that's that's the kind of world I want to produce where people have confidence in their ability to do that. And, and, and that involves two kinds of battles that involves a battle for um a battle against systems and, and, and structural issues that keep people from recognizing their power. Uh, and, and that also, that there's also an individual battle, a battle of helping people respect their potential, regardless of what's going on around them. But, you know, that's what I want to achieve, man. Until the world is free, uh, I need to learn to be free myself and almost no matter what goes on around me. That, that, that general sentiment is very, um, very powerful to me. It's that simultaneously working on making the world a freer, better place while also realizing, um, unless and until that happens, I have the duty and the ability to make myself free, uh, in the here and now.
Absolutely, man. And hey, I want to say one thing about this. Like, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about reclaiming the celebration of success stories, and I'm so passionate about finding a way to talk about success that doesn't come off as victim blaming, is because I, I, I hate it. I hate it when I see people use self-help philosophy as a way to bash other people and as a way to blame other people. You and I talked about this the last time we had a discussion where Wayne Dyer has a concept of responsibility that I really love, where he said, responsibility is not blame. Responsibility is the recognition of your power to respond with ability, that you have the ability to face everything that you're going to going through from a place of power. Um, and, and that's something that I feel really passionate about. And when I see people hurting, when I see people suffering, when I see people feeling like they're disenfranchised, like they're broke down, like they're excluded and left out, that really does hurt me. I'm, I'm not one of those people who looks at poor people or broke people or victims and, you know, turns his, uh, his nose up and says, ah, well, you didn't work hard enough or, ah, well, don't complain about this or that or blah, blah, blah. No, man, I, I, I'm moved by people's suffering and, and I want to see people succeed. I want to see people be fulfilled. I want to see people experience their potential and get a chance to live it out. And, uh, and, and that's why I'm so passionate about talking about success. Um, you know, not because I think too many people are making excuses, but I think I think there are too many, too many people that haven't been told in a manner that's intelligent, convincing and compelling how how powerful they're capable of being. Hmm. That is uh, that is really inspiring. Awesome stuff. It is a, a great uh, quote by Camus. It's something to the effect of, um, you know, be be so free live so free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. And that's the spirit that, uh, that I think you're, you're advocating and trying to embody. My guest has been TK Coleman. TK, thank you so much for joining, uh, this conversation. I had a, a great time. Uh, even though, as I said, there were moments where I felt a little uncomfortable. Uh, that's where I want to be. I always want to push myself to the edge of comfort. And I hope that, um, I hope you enjoyed the discussion as well. Would you like to, to leave any final, you mentioned several thinkers and books and articles, any final uh, one or two things you recommend people to go, to go check out on this topic? Oh man. So, you know, I, I'll just give two books off the top of my head. Uh, there's a book by Michael Eric Dyson and it's called is Bill Cosby right? Or has the black middle-class lost its mind? And he talks a lot about identity politics and how, a lot of affluent, successful black people have, you know, involved themselves in the discussion of criticizing black people that aren't successful. And, and he brings a lot of a lot of interesting, provocative and balancing points to that discussion. Uh, the, the second book is uh, actually the article that I mentioned by Tim Wise. It's called What Kind of Card is Race to Play? And, and, and if you post this somewhere online, I can email you the link so you can include that in, in the video. But those would be two pieces off the top of my head I recommend. Well, thank you, TK. It's been a pleasure. Look forward to the next time. 